everyone. Thank you so much for coming to the last panel of our workshop. You made it until here, which is great. And the title of the panel is Reaching Out to <coughs> Traditional Justice Institutions, Outreach, and Local Communities. And so far during this workshop, we've talked a lot about the relationship between academics, journalists, and traditional justice institutions, especially international criminal courts. And now, finally, we will introduce a new category of actors into this debate, and that is variously called local communities, affected communities, victims, but also perpetrators. So the people that these traditional justice institutions often claim to speak, on whose behalf they often claim to speak, we finally get them in here, and especially look at how traditional justice institutions, such as international criminal courts, have tried to engage with victims, affected communities, but also maybe perpetrators and what role the media has played in that engagement and to what extent these efforts, which have, especially in recent years, they have been a lot of focus on outreach, to what extent it's fair to say that these efforts have, have contributed to local ownership of these courts or, or local legitimacy, if you want. And we will start with Alison Smith, who is a legal counsel and director of the International Criminal Justice Program with No Peace Without Justice uh, from Brussels. Um, so thanks very much. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm based in Brussels. I'm actually from Australia. If I speak too quickly or you don't understand anything, just give me a shout and I will try and correct myself. Um, I wanted to thank the, particularly the OTJR for organizing this meeting which I found to be incredibly interesting and, and very useful. It's given me a lot of food for thought. Uh, and I particularly appreciate the interdisciplinary nature of the discussion, uh, which I also find in the vibe somehow of Oxford as a city. Um, so I wanted actually to start my presentation with a little interdisciplinary story, which may not seem relevant, but its relevance hopefully will become clear. So yesterday, I was having breakfast at uh, St. Hugh's College, and I was sitting next to a medieval historian who was having a discussion with another historian about the Magna Carta. And they were talking about the parchment and the handwriting and all of this kind of thing. But what they said was the barons and the bishops all came to meet the king to have negotiations in French, to write the Magna Carta in Latin, that they then took with them, copied it down, took it back to, to where they lived. And then the interesting thing was over the next hundred years, they said you could see in some of the court cases that some provisions of the Magna Carta that gave rights to, let's say, the ordinary people were, were, were being used in court cases. So they were being used to, to help the people win their rights. And I was thinking, well, the people probably didn't speak French, and I'm fairly certain they didn't speak Latin, so could this be one of the first examples of outreach? Of the bishops and the barons taking the information back to the people, explaining it to them, engaging with them, and then seeing it actually making a difference in the lives of people. So I thought that might be an interesting uh, research paper. <laughs> but if we fast forward uh, 800 years or so later, um, Outreach was not a priority uh, in the early years of the ICTY or the ICTR. Uh, it wasn't until the late 1990s that outreach really started to get uh, some kind of uh, recognition and some kind of, of prominence and importance. Uh, and this happened first, I think, at the ICTY in the, in the late 90s. 
uh, when they realized that for all the work that they were doing, they were actually having very little impact on the ground. Uh, there were very few people in the former Yugoslavia who knew what the ICTY was, who knew what it was doing, and so forth. Uh, and when we were doing uh, investigations in Kosovo, we found we had to do outreach. So we had to explain what the ICTY was, you know, manage people's expectations about what information they were giving us might be used for. But the ICTY started to pay attention to outreach in that time, and I, I think it's improved a lot since then, although we've had discussions about this, and, and there's others who are more expert than I am in the audience on, on that issue. Another thing that happened in 2000 was negotiations began for the special court for Sierra Leone. Uh, it was negotiations between the government of Sierra Leone and the United Nations on the establishment of the court to address the atrocities since 1991 uh, during the conflict in Sierra Leone. And what happened there was we started working with civil society uh, at the end of 2000, beginning of 2001, to do outreach on the special court before the court was established. And that had two results, I think. One was that there was a well-informed, uh, supportive, and engaged group of civil society members uh, who were ready to be a partner, let's say, for the court in doing outreach uh, throughout Sierra Leone, uh, and then eventually also in Liberia. And the other thing was that it created a demand on the part of civil society that the special court would give importance to outreach, and that it would have an outreach unit, and that it would do outreach uh, throughout the country. And I believe you're going to talk more about this, so I won't go into too, too much detail. You know more than I do, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, one of the important points was it started to institutionalize this idea of outreach. Um, but it still wasn't until 2005 uh, that it became more institutionalized at the International Criminal Court when the Assembly of States parties uh, adopted uh, the Omnibus Resolution, which is a resolution they adopt every year on strengthening the international criminal justice system, and they included a reference to outreach. So there were two important things about that. One was it gave uh, policy importance to the issue, a direction from the Assembly of States parties to the International Criminal Court that they had to do outreach and they had to do it well. And the other important thing is that it gave us a definition of outreach. So essentially the definition is that it's a two-way dialogue with victims and affected communities to promote understanding, to manage expectations, and to prevent uh, misinformation or misconceptions. Or as it turns out, to correct misinformation and misperceptions, uh, given there have been issues, of course, with implementation of outreach. That's another issue. I think what's important to note is that one of the purposes is not to promote support. That's not the idea of outreach. The idea is to put people, the victims and affected communities, in a position where they can make a, an informed decision about how they're going to view the court, about how they're going to view a transitional justice mechanism. Not everybody's going to support transitional justice, that's completely fine, uh, but do so on the basis of correct information rather than on the basis of misinformation or, or conspiracy theories. Now, at best, I think outreach can lead to ownership, and in Sierra Leone, certainly, civil society felt uh, and continues to feel a very strong sense of ownership about the special court. Uh, it can also help with cooperation. Um, I remember uh, the delegate from Serbia in 2005 saying that he wished there'd been more outreach because then it would have been easier 
for the Serbian government later on to, to be able to cooperate with the court and hand over invitees. But it's all about making the process work and it's about delivering justice to people. Because you can do all the justice you like in The Hague, but if people on the ground don't know about it, there's, there's a, a question of whether it's really worth uh, all of the effort. And in this respect, I wanted to mention, um, you mentioned about victims outreach and perpetrator outreach. I don't see that there's like two categories or two kinds of outreach. I think outreach is outreach. Um, people tend to have the same information needs. Uh, they need to know what the court is. They need to know about fair trial rights. They need to know, um, you know what's going to happen. They need to understand the process as a whole. And perhaps an exception here is um, outreach on victims' participation, which maybe Gail will talk about. I'm sure. um, that's, that's a different category. But in general, uh, I think outreach is outreach. And people have different concerns and they have different fears. Uh, and you, you understand those through engaging in this process of dialogue and then you can address what people's concerns are. Um, there are many ways that outreach can be done. Uh, I'm not going to go into any details about that, although I'm happy to, to speak more about that if people are interested. But uh, there's, for example, town hall meetings, there's radio programs, there's leaflets, there's lectures, there's uh, drama. Uh, we had a fun drama uh, group going through the markets in Freetown doing outreach uh, on the special court. There's uh, football. I mean, the ways that you can do outreach is limited only by the creativity of the outreach team, I would say. Now, in this respect, the media has two roles to play, as I see it, in outreach. And those journalists uh, among us can, of course, correct me if, uh, if I'm wrong. Uh, but the media is both a target group for outreach and they're a potential partner for outreach within the context of uh, the role of the journalist, independence, uh, and, and so on and so forth. They're an important target group primarily because they're part of the population. They have the same information needs as everybody else. But they're also an important target group because they provide information to the public, be it through radio, newspaper, television or, or however else. So they need to know the basics about the court and they need to know also things like who are the political backers of the court, who's funding the court, who, prom who appoints the principals of the court, the prosecutor, the registrar, the judges, you know, where do the staff come from. And they need to know all of these things because these things make for very fun conspiracy theories if people don't know information about them. Uh, you know, you all hear about how the US is not supporting the ICC and it's a tool of Europe and all of this kind of thing. So all of these sort of more institutional aspects really need to be known by the media. Then, if they want to, they can also be an important partner for the court. They can provide the court with space, for example, on radio, uh, on television and, and so forth. Um, they can provide uh, training, let's say, to other journalists, so take the information they've received from the court and make sure their colleagues know uh, correct and timely information about the court. Um, they can even possibly you know, engage with the court to say, well, you know, this political development's coming up, you need to be aware, you need to be ready to react. Uh, the only final thing that I would say about that is while the media can be an important partner, and indeed civil society and, and, and others can also be an important partner, it's 
absolutely critical that courts do outreach themselves because there are some messages that can only come from the courts. And this happened in Sierra Leone, for example. We uh, could say until we were blue in the face and did that even though the, the court had jurisdiction over people aged 15 and above, we couldn't see how a child would fit into the category of those who bear the greatest responsibility for the crimes. And these were two elements of the, of the special court statute. So we said this a lot, but people were still skeptical until the first prosecutor came on, on the radio and said, I am not going to prosecute children because I don't think they bear the greatest responsibility. And then people believed it. So there's an important role, I think, for the media to play, but it's the court itself that has to, to do its own outreach. And I think that's 15 minutes, so I will stop there and hand it back. I will give that to Gerhard, please. Uh, and Gerhard is Gerhard Anders is lecturer in African Studies at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you. I didn't know that 15 minutes were so short. The time flew. Uh, was just settling in and uh, hoping to hear more. Uh, but in some ways, my presentation, I think, will uh, will connect to some of the uh, of the comments and remarks that that Alison has made. Uh, so I think they they uh, fit nicely together. Um, I've prepared a couple of of slides, so just bear with me. Uh, okay. Not much really, just a couple of, uh, of pictures, of photographs from, from outreach events that were conducted by staff of the Special Court for Sierra Leone in parts of Eastern and Northern Sierra Leone. Um, now in the past two days, I mean, this has been a terrific workshop and has been mentioned already, but I would like to, uh, to add to that as well, that I think this, uh, this meeting of practitioners, journalists, um, and, and academics of various stripe uh, has been really, uh, really terrific, fantastic, and I'm looking forward to further uh, activities of this, uh, of this initiative. And you've been uh, really addressing the right questions, I might say, and the, the question, uh, to whom do we reach out, is, is one of those. That's, that's absolutely spot on. To whom do we reach out, or to whom, not we, uh, to whom does uh, TJ uh, reach out? And I might, might add, uh, why do they reach out, and how do they reach out, and as well as where, and uh, it'll come to the location in a moment. And I would like to address these questions by drawing on my anthropological field research uh, in Sierra Leone and Liberia a few years back. And I, it was part of a broader research project. I'm still kind of trying to, to write it up, but probably I'll give up uh, now that the court has already seen the end of its existence. Um, but I was trying to understand how criminal responsibility uh, is being constructed through these trials, how legal technologies are being employed to ascribe individual uh, responsibility. So that was actually what I was mainly interested in. But I was also interested in uh, how the special court literally uh, reached out to people. And it should be noted that, uh, and Alison has mentioned this, the special court was really the first tribunal that took this, well, uh, or say there were, there were some beginnings from the ICTY, but, but it made it more of a sort of really explicit, we have an outreach uh, department. And so it was a, a major nationwide uh, initiative rolled out in Sierra Leone. And I think that's why maybe my uh, fairly specific observations in Sierra Leone might have resonance uh, with the theme of outreach uh, in a more general sense, because this is in some way a laboratory, uh, an experiment uh, of outreach uh, in the, uh, during the 2004-2010. The uh, um, and I should also 
add that the special court, I mean, was explicitly set up in Sierra Leone to bring international criminal justice closer uh, to the to the people in affected regions. And it's quite interesting then to see that the major, the main, the most important trial then was moved back uh, to The Hague, actually. So, so yes, it was important to bring international criminal justice to Sierra Leone, but uh, only up to a certain uh, degree. Now, uh, the employees of the Special Court for Sierra Leone conducted an impressive number of outreach events and radio programs uh, in Sierra Leone, much less in Liberia. The Liberian outreach was always a bit of a stepchild of the outreach uh, conducted by the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Um, and in 2004, uh, just, for in just to give you an example, uh, that was the year the first two uh, trials started uh, in Freetown, the court's outreach officers conducted uh, 780 events in towns and villages, the town hall events that Alison alluded to, uh, 397 video screenings, uh, and 654 radio programs, and 165 school meetings. So that is quite impressive, it's for one year only. And uh, the radio programs are uh, particularly interesting, actually, because many of the radio stations, uh, and this was a topic that was mentioned, I think, in an earlier panel, uh, many of the people working in the radio stations were actually former uh, rebels of the RUF uh, radio operators. Uh, so there was an interesting exercise of reintegration. Uh, so they played an important role in this outreach, actually. Um, and yet, in spite of these impressive numbers, the outreach event, uh, I, the outreach uh, program was pretty much a shoestring operation, uh, I would say. Um, in the context of you know spending about 20 million US dollars a year on the tribunal, uh, the budget for the outreach, I'm, I'm sure Alison knows probably much better now, I don't have the exact numbers, but it was never more than a few hundred thousand uh, euros. Um, so, so fairly small. So we have a shoestring operation within a shoestring court actually, because the special court for Sierra Leone was seen as a shoestring operation as well. 20 million a year is dwarfed by 100 million a year or 120 million a year uh, by the other tribunals. And let me explain what I mean by shoestring. Um, maybe some of you who have been to these outreach events would be familiar with that, but that is like the common picture that would you, that you would see in Pierre. Uh, uh, refer to this. I mean, these courtrooms are set up for the media. You have cameras everywhere. Um, so, so this is the, the usual view from the public gallery. Uh, and then uh, look at the stark uh, contrast of a typical, fairly typical outreach event uh, conducted in, in rural Sierra Leone, this particular one in a village close to um, Makeni in the north. And, and you can see uh, you know, this, this is a very low-key operation. It's being done in the village uh, court, uh, basically an open structure with a roof. Uh, you can see there a TV set. Uh, there's a generator uh, somewhere connected to it and a little speaker. So, I mean, this is a really small operation, not very impressive at all. I think there are other NGOs who, who have a much more impressive display uh, than the special care for Sierra Leone. So, in some ways, uh, probably... Mary's Meals or other NGOs are, are making much more of an impact in a way of, of, uh, of a spectacle. Um, so really a, a, a fairly <laughs> modest operation. This is like where these were typically, where these were typically, typically, sorry, typically uh, held, you know, drawing uh, the villagers and uh, 
you know, everybody huddling around a little television set uh, with a blaring uh, speaker and, uh, and a sort of uh, rattling uh, generator in the back. Um, and it was actually a few, not, very few people who, uh, who conducted these outreach events. Um, in Freetown, you had a small group of people, including a public affairs officer, uh, a couple of technicians, and the management, at that time then headed by Binta Manzurei, who later became the registrar of the special court. Uh, and in each of the Sierra Leone's, in each of Sierra Leone's 12 districts, the court had posted one or two outreach officers. So these were uh, local employees, Sierra Leoneans, usually from that part of the country, from that, from that area, uh, who were supposed to act, if you like, as foot soldiers of international criminal law. Uh, trying to convince people, trying to convey information in these uh, events. <coughs> and most of them had an NGO background. Many of them actually had been involved, uh, probably thanks to Alison, in the, uh, in the civil society groups that were, uh, that were brought into the scene. Uh, so I remember a couple of people mentioning that, that they were actually working at that time, at the very early years, uh, with, the, with the group for the special court. So I was shadowing these outreach officers during several months when they went about their incredibly difficult and challenging work, uh, how they brought the court to the people, as they said, and how people reacted to the message of retributive justice that was being uh, sent out by them. And in their day-to-day -day work, these officers conducted hundreds of these events. Um, I mainly focused uh, sort of in army barracks, police uh, stations, schools, um, town halls, and so on and so on. I mainly focused on Makeni, Makburaka, Bo, Kenema, and Kailahun in the Far East. And these were very modest, as you can see, and mundane events, drawing, you know, often a couple of dozen people, uh, very intimate encounters in many ways. And I think that's made them so interesting if we're looking at these different uh, views of justice or different demands for justice. Um, and I have to distinguish them from much larger events that were carried out in the provincial centers uh, with expatriate staff. So you had much larger events as well, but these were uh, fewer, uh, less regularly. And these were very impressive uh, displays. So often expatriate staff being helicoptered in with a white UN helicopter, uh, and a whole motorcade of SUVs coming in town, uh, you know, armed guards, the whole thing. Um, but these were more intimidating in a way. So here, uh, the audiences uh, felt much more uh, invited to actually uh, say what they were thinking of the project of international criminal justice, and in particular about the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Now let me highlight four points uh, that emerged from that research and that I think speak uh, to, to some of the questions that we, have, uh, that we have addressed so far. Now first of all, and, and this is crucial, uh, the audiences uh, the local outreach officers engaged with existed, and it was mentioned in the panel, in one of the panels yesterday on Somalia, in an information-rich environment. And I think that is important to really just remind us of that, that people usually have a whole range of different sources of information uh, that they can draw on. Um, and, and I have to say, uh, I, was, I was fairly uh, impressed by the, but maybe it was thanks to Alison's work in the, in the early 2000s, but I was fairly impressed by uh, the, the knowledge, uh, the way that people articulated uh, their comments, their questions, very well informed. Uh, they knew who the witnesses were, they knew who the protected witnesses were as well, uh, often, uh, some of them. Uh, so that was quite, quite interesting. Of course, there's also conspiracy theories and all of that as well, 
but uh, from a research point of view, the conspiracy theories actually often do hint at, at something which is often very true. Of course, the conspiracy theory is distorted. It, it is not exact a representation of the facts, but often people are onto something. They just have a different way of expressing it. Um, now, during these events, audiences, at least as far as I can see, and, and I could also see that because I was doing uh, quite a fair bit of research uh, in the rest of Sierra Leone as well, audiences were overwhelmingly critical. They did not really... Uh, any longer, this is now in 2009, this one, uh, they did not any longer really buy into that retributive vision of justice. Uh, they were asking for distributive justice, if you like, for social justice, for development. Uh, of course, the court officers would say, well, but we are a court, we do not deliver development, but people did have, again, a fair point. They said, why spend that money that we could use, uh, and, and you're well familiar with that, why could we spend that money uh, not on roads, on hospitals, and so on. And we said, no, well, the international community decided to give it to international criminal justice. So, you know, that's, that's what we give you. Um, you know, you better, better make the best of it. Um, so, so we can really see uh, a, a critique, articulate, passionate, and critical, emerging in these, in these events. And it is uh, in specific, specifically about recognition of suffering and compensation for loss. It's about development, it's about social justice, as I've said. And now we should be very careful, of course, and just to say audiences were critical. Uh, these are just individual voices. And these events, even small ones like this, are pretty much uh, choreographed. There's a choreography to it. Um, you can see in the front row these elderly gentlemen, so these would be the village elders. Uh, then the, the children kind of here then further in the back, the younger men, and then here, uh, women. So, so, I mean, it's not like an audience, it's just one thing, of course. It's a very abstract idea. So this is a crowd, and it's quite interesting to see that not everybody spoke, of course, and that there was a bit of a hierarchy who would speak when. Uh, so when I say people were highly critical, we have to unpack that, actually, because I was in this event. I don't know what people thought when they went home. Um, I know, of course, based on my other research, that, that many people wanted to have some punishment for people who perpetrated crimes. Um, often they didn't think it was maybe the ones who were in the dock in Freetown, but maybe some guy in the next village who had led the RUF to the village and you know, had directed the violence. So you would, uh, you would have that as well. But I think generally, by the late but sort of 2009, people were pretty disenchanted. They were pretty disillusioned with the special court. I think I can say that quite safely. Um, and they didn't think it did deliver uh, what it promised to do. Now let me uh, just add to that, and it has been mentioned as well, that the audiences didn't see the court as impartial or as objective. Uh, they saw the court as part of the political landscape of the country at that time. Uh, so I think, again, uh, a point has been made already a couple of times, but it's important to, um, uh, to, to do it. So because there, I think that's one of the challenges that, that outreach really uh, faces, and that is that it is about information. But actually, I think, and there I would differ with Alison, it is about creating support for the International Criminal Court. Um, so, so this information is not that technical thing that is being conveyed. People see it as a political message, and I think that's one of the main challenges, and that's why the uh, employees of the Special Court are often struggling 
because they couldn't say what was on their mind. They had the official script, and the official script was a fairly simplistic one. All right, um, I think I have a feeling I should move on to my next uh, couple of points. Uh, I've scribbled something down here as well. Um, I think an important point, though, is, so it's not about conveying information. It's about creating support for the uh, court. Uh, that's what the court does. Uh, they have to legitimize what they do. And that's where another audience or another set of audiences comes into play, has already been alluded to as well. And that's audiences in the countries uh, where um, the, the, the international criminal tribunals want to uh, garner support. Uh, the capitals in, in Western Europe, North America mainly. Uh, so there are audiences there. And these audiences need to be convinced by the audiences, if you like, uh, the public in Sierra Leone, that this is a worthwhile endeavor. And, and I'm not saying it is not, but I'm just saying how it operates. Uh, in these days, you need opinion polls. You have to show that the people in the affected regions want this type of justice. So you're using, in a way, these outreach events to legitimize uh, what you are trying to do. And I think that's problematic as well because it's in instrumentalizing these events. So they do not turn into a two-way traffic, into a real public market or a public sphere. Uh, they are, uh, you know, instrumentalized in, an, in another legitimizing uh, project uh, with, with different audiences, more abstract audiences. What is the public in the West? What is the public in North America, of course, is problematic. Now, this brings me to the next point. It is this legitimizing work that seems to be uh, really at the core of what these tribunals do and which often taints uh, what they do. If you are in a domestic court, you do not have to work like part of your, you know, half of your time trying to convince people that it's a good court. You can just assume that the court is there to stay. So that's one of the problems that the staff of the International Criminal Tribunals has been facing. They spend a lot of energy on, on trying to create uh, support for what they were doing. That's why we have Naomi Campbell and Mia Farrow testifying in The Hague. Fantastic. Uh, could be another paper. It's another presentation. It was a fantastic uh, show, really. Uh, the only time that the special court had to wait was like, is Naomi Campbell in the... Is she in the house? And they said, nah, she's in the house, but she's not yet in the courtroom, so you have to wait. Um, so, so what you see is basically a PR strategy, and you need that these days, of course. I'm not saying PR strategies are per se bad, but in a way, sometimes I felt kind of uh, the, the contrast. You know, you have people here, you want to engage in a genuine, authentic discussion about international criminal justice, and then later you see, you know, someone like Hermann von Hebel quoting uh, a survey of 10,000 people uh, of which 91% said that the court is contributing to peace and reconciliation in Sierra Leone. That's a quote. Uh, and of course, I mean, who would disagree if, if you, you, know, you face a numerator, someone asks you, do you think the court for Sierra Leone is contributing to peace and reconciliation? You know, you want to be polite, you don't know who this guy is, so you will say yes. Uh, and so then you have 91%. Anyway, I don't want to uh, really, uh, maybe you know, there's more sophisticated analyses, but, but I think there is a problem there. Uh, so you have this, uh, these opinion polls that are being used as a tool to convince audiences in the West, and I think that's not doing justice to these audiences. Okay. Uh, now let me come to the third and penultimate point, um, and, and that is one uh, point that was raised in the brief, is that I 
didn't have the feeling that these events, these outreach events, were actually a two-way traffic. They seemed very much a one-way traffic. They seemed very much a top-down situation. And uh, that might be something, uh, you know, where also the court is at its limits in a way. Uh, I'll, I'll come to that when I come to speak a bit about uh, practical recommendations. Uh, how am I doing on time? You were, I, I can't read it, actually. Uh, all right, no problem, sure. Uh, I thought you were saying like 45 seconds or something like that, then I would be worried, but uh, two minutes. Um, okay, point being made, um, it's, it's a very top-down operation. It's very much we provide information. We, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, provide information to you. Uh, we have a Q&A, so, so these events, you would have a, a possibility for a Q&A, um, but, but then it doesn't filter up. So basically the special court outreach officer uh, gives a bit short presentation. They show some video footage of, of witnesses that are being uh, examined in the courtroom. And then you have a quick Q&A of 15 minutes and that's it. And, and people sort of wanted to use these Q&A sessions to really raise fundamental philosophical questions, if you like, about social justice. Well, not only philosophical, real problems for them. And then the, court, the court's officers, and I often felt they were really facing a very difficult task indeed, had to give them this very legal, legalistic, technical thing. You know, yes, we have to, uh, you know, you, you have to prosecute the people who are accused of this. So, so they, they, somehow they were at a disadvantage even. They couldn't engage these audiences kind of on an equal footing because they were bound by the simplistic narrative that they were supposed to uh, present. All right. Um, the top-down operation, I think, was uh, characterized by three problems. Two problems had to do with processes of translation, and I'll come to that then in the last 30 seconds. Um, first of all, uh, I think there was a problem with translation in the literal sense. Okay, So you have translation from English uh, into Creole, the lingua franca in Sierra Leone, and then Timini, Mende, uh, Limba and other languages that are being spoken there, that are, that are spoken in Sierra Leone. So you have a whole long chain of translation um, and you have people who are simply not trained to, to translate this stuff. Uh, so you get very interesting results and I can't claim to speak these local languages but often l listening to the final product you can't kind of you wonder sort of you know what happened in between. It's like someone here starts saying something in the ear of the next person and then it gets out there in the end and you know it's completely distorted. Uh, so that's one problem. The other problem that was mentioned in the very first panel on Colombia is translation uh, of these abstract legal categories into layperson's lay uh, terms. That is a huge challenge. Um, and, and I don't think that the special court did a very good job at doing this. Uh, they were just simply not equipped to do this. You start out as an uh, outreach officer. You get a training in Freetown in the court's headquarters of about four weeks. And that's it. And, you know, and then you're just sent out there and you have to do it. Uh, so these are really uh, major challenges. And the other one uh, is the media technologies that are being employed. I was in awe of all the apps and the Twitters and everything. I mean, this is almost looks like a prehistoric operation uh, with, a, with a TV set, uh, you know, some posters here. Uh, this is a police station where they had an event. I'm sorry, bear with me here. Yeah. I mean, this looks like a very... You know, this is a very low-fi, this is a very low-key operation. You have a speaker here, the TV set, you know. Um, so, so I think probably 
techno technological advance has made huge strides in the past couple of years, so I would be very interested to hear or discuss about possibilities for outreach employing these new media technologies, because these, quite frankly, uh, didn't work. I mean, the speaker was blaring, you were sitting back there, you had no idea what was going on. Here on the screen, you see Charles Taylor, you have no idea, what is this going on about? Uh, what are they talking about? No idea. Um, so, so these were one of the, this was the third challenge that they faced. Now, uh, to wrap up, and that comes, brings us to the concept of communities. It is as problematic as the concept of publics or audiences. Simply said, there are no communities, actually. It's, it's a very convenient shorthand to talk about you know, reaching out to the local level, but there are no communities. There are no kind of unified agents or entities, communities. These are highly divided uh, societies. That's what led to the war in the first place. And, and so there is no community to speak of, actually. You have differences, and I alluded to that, between village authorities, men, women, regional, ethnic, all of that uh, perspective or, or view of the court was quite different in the north from the east. I can't go into that because Lila is looking at me very sternly, so, so you have to bear with me. But, but so it just, just suffice it to say, uh, and you know, probably uh, it's, it's, it's a moot point in a way because probably anyone here would subscribe to that, but it's, 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 you can't speak of these communities as a sort of entity. Uh, often do we do it. Now bring me to the last thing, recommendations, kind of practical thoughts. Now first of all, don't have poor translations for poor people. Invest in translations. Improve the quality of these translations. And it has been made also in relation to human rights language that the process of translation is highly political, it creates often highly distorted results, and it often undermines the objectives of the human rights movement. So, so do spend a lot of energy on translations. Draw on expertise that is available, linguistic, uh, anthropological. I'm an anthropologist myself, so, so I have to kind of offer the services of, uh, of my profession, although they are not uh, willingly rendered, probably. but. Uh, uh, important point here. Uh, number two, and I wanted to talk about it maybe then in the, in the Q&A, make outreach more interactive. This was a very top-down operation. So the question is, are these new technologies that we have been discussing, could they play a role in outreach? Maybe they could improve, you know, just scale up the whole thing, go from here to something uh, which is much more uh, contextual maybe, contextualizing. You know, I was wondering, people in all these villages in Sierra Leone, they have had so many different experiences of the war. Why not use this as a fantastic resource in the outreach events and start asking people about what happened in this village, what were you doing? So instead, the outreach officers just gave this official narrative, but they could have made it more interactive. And that brings us to the last point, that is local ownership. Would that increase local ownership? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not convinced, really. Um, why am I not convinced? I think that's where the limit, I, I just mentioned it very briefly, I think these are the limits of international criminal justice in a way. Um, and maybe you don't want to have a criminal court that is locally owned. I would like to have a court that is, you know, maybe at a, distant, at a distance uh, when it renders justice. So I think this uh, local ownership, and we might discuss this if you want, uh, could be actually very problematic, actually undermining Justice. I remember Phil gave a presentation a couple of weeks back uh, saying that the very uh, legitimization of international criminal justice is its distance 
to these crimes, and he problematized that. I agree with that, but in, even in a national context, uh, you would like to have a judge that is not you know, locally owned, if you like. You want to have a judge that is independent, so there might be some, uh, some tension there uh, that we should need uh, to address. And I think it's also local ownership comes really here. Maybe, maybe the whole talk about participation, victims focus, uh, as you know, as good as it sounds, it might be very well. It is actually very difficult to to implement it. Um, law, in the end, is violence. You 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 punish someone. You lock someone away for for many years. Uh, you send out a message that you know if you act against the law, uh, you know the law will strike down on you. Um, so so local ownership is actually complete in contradiction to to the violence of the law. Law is violence, and it should be. It's punishing someone. So maybe uh, proponents of international criminal justice should be less circumspect, less circumspect, play less to the court of public opinion, and just say, okay, you know, we are bringing you the law. Uh, you better comply, uh, or we'll crush you. Well, I don't know. Uh, it's just a thought. Uh, I, I think I have no more to say. Uh, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the next presentation. Or she was not ready to answer, and the court may not be ready to answer. 
Uh, so, so maybe just one lesson learned here is just to, to assume a bit less and, and also um, have that two-way two discussion. Uh, it's not about us coming and informing only, it's also about hearing what the concepts are uh, and taking them into account. Um, another challenge on lessons learned that was just mentioned is translation. Um, when we talk about victims' rights, we're talking about something that's quite um, nitty-gritty legal work. What does participation mean? What does reparation mean? Um, oh, well, international has that world concept of, of reparation. Um, well, in many languages, uh, it's only translated as financial compensation. And if you're not aware of that, when you undertake your outreach, you're already from the start creating expectations and transforming the, the dialogue in a way. Um, as far as, as, as the ICC's outreach is concerned, I think that there's a few challenges that I wanted to, to touch upon. And um, the first one is confusion as to what outreach at DC's ICC is. And I think Alison's mentioned it. Uh, it took a while for states parties to recognize that this was an important function of the court. I think in the early stages, people were not quite sure what it even meant. Uh, is, is a tour of the ICC building outreach? Is that not? Um, when clarity arose as to what it should or could uh, include, uh, funding became also an issue, and it still is the case. Um, organizations like myself, or No Peace Without Justice, have that fight every single year when the court's budget is discussed. How much should go into outreach? How important is it? Uh, should we keep the office in that country? So last year, for example, because nothing had been happening in Uganda as far as the uh, ICC proceedings were concerned, um, civil society <coughs> on the ground, intermediaries affected communities were informed that outreach was scaling down dramatically with possibly the closing of the office there. Um, now Angwen shows up and all of a sudden it's, oh my, what are we going to do? Starting from scratch. But at the same time, there, there is attention and a challenge there. Um, how much money should you be spending for how long when nothing is happening? Uh, is there a need for information when nothing is happening? Now, again, I don't think everyone would agree on that. Um, we were at a, at a meeting in The Hague a few weeks ago where people were like, well, stop disturbing victims all the time. Come and speak to them when you have something to tell them. And at the same time, I was in Uganda in March with groups saying, well, in, in the domestic proceedings in Uganda, in front of um, the, the International Crimes Division they're creating to try domestically um, some of these crimes, Thomas Coelho had been um, arrested, facing justice, but also with lots of delays because he was seeking amnesty. And the groups were saying, well, we don't have any information. Why is the delay? And the answer is that, well, nothing's really happening. We have nothing to tell you. We, we're just waiting for that judgment. People still wanted some information. So where do you draw that line? Uh, I don't have the answer, but I think these are, these are some questions um, we, we need to consider. Um, Top down, I think this is definitely one challenge we've seen with the ICC. Um, I would say over time it has improved. Um, there is more dialogue with the ground, with civil society as to how they can improve their messages. Uh, we're seeing a shift in the way the court itself is structured. Um, the, the registry, which is the organ charged with delivering outreach and information, is undertaken at the moment 
um, a very very big revision, restructuring of how they do their work. And one of the things um, that they're recognizing is the need to be closer to the field, to empower those on the ground, uh, to have more ownership about what messages they're distributing, how they're going to go about doing it, uh, who are the best targets, because someone sitting in the head may not be the best person to make these decisions. Um, so so, so some, some of these cha challenges um, uh, lie there. Um, who is the target audience it is also um, a challenge. Because even, uh, even for us, we're focusing only on victims' rights. Uh, well, what does that mean? Um, at the ICC, you can open a big investigation in a country, but then only two cases are brought. So are you talking to, to victims generally? Are you talking to the victims of that particular case? Um, how do you deal with the fact that you may not know in the audience you've got uh, who is who uh, and the different interests that they may have? Uh, so so that's, that's another challenge in terms of having an outreach that's flexible enough and that you can adapt sometimes directly when you're delivering them. Um, I think, and, and I'll stay brief, but uh, there are some challenges as well as to reaching out to particular groups of people. Uh, in, in the picture we were seeing earlier, it was quite striking. I think you know you could see four women hidden in the back. Um, well, if you're if you're trying to reach out to particular groups such as women, such as children, uh, then maybe a big town hall meeting is not the best way to do it. And maybe you need to have a separate meeting to to enable them to raise their own views and their own concerns and ask their own questions, which may be very different uh, from the ones for, from from other groups. Um, what else? Um, another challenge is what to say. So you've identified to whom you've decided maybe you should do it or the court should do it, but what are you going to be saying? Um, one, one of the aspects um, <coughs> we, we've faced, uh, and, and I think it's also part of the reason why you still need outreach directly done by the court institution, is we may not always have the same interests or the same views. Um, I remember the first time we went to, to I went to, to Eastern DRC, uh, back in 2009, I think, meeting with victims of, of the Manga case or, or in that region, and the main question people had was reparation, and when we approached the court and said, okay, so what are you doing as far as information and outreach goes for reparation, the answer was, it's way too early to talk about it, we don't want to raise expectations. Um, but where do you draw that line again? Uh, because if you don't inform and if you don't build capacity around these notions that are quite technical, uh, when the time comes for reparation, you need to start from scratch. And then maybe other challenges are built in, which means you don't have the time or the resources to do that work properly, and people miss out. Um, which I would say, to me, is, is one of the challenges they're facing now with, um, with the DRC cases that are at the reparation stage, is uh, the judges have set up a deadline for a reparation plan to be submitted in six months. Six months is a very, very short time if you have to inform, explain, and then give a, an a chance for the communities to make an informed decision as to what it should look like, whether they want to engage, how they want to engage. Um, on that particular point, and I think maybe to, to build on one of the questions for, for the, um, the panel, but the role of the media, I think, uh, 
the, the media could be a useful partner for the ICC in helping them shape their messages to make them uh, a bit more accessible. Uh, and, and we're guilty uh, of it, I think, too, is we were so ingrained in, in our day-to-day -day work focusing on the legal um, developments, the proceedings and the filings that we tend to forget uh, what we take for granted is not necessarily granted to someone who doesn't understand anything about law, has probably never seen a trial or met a lawyer, uh, but has an interest in what's happening at this foreign court. Um, I was quite shocked preparing for that mission in DRC where I was selecting excerpt from the, the videos the court does, um, trying to, to say, okay, which bits may be interesting for, for local communities to look, uh, which part of the trial. And one of the tools they're using, uh, which in principle is a very good tool, is uh, Q&A videos, where they have a court official uh, answering questions that are um, based on questions they hear from the ground, um, and then you can just show their answer. But um, something quite striking is the legal jargon that's used even in these quite simple videos. Um, I think three times in that video, which is about the reparation decision in Lubanga, first ever um, <coughs> final decision on reparation in any case before the court. Uh, and the video kept saying, so the judges have said six months from the decision, we will have a plan. Why can't they just say 3rd of September? It, like, to me, it was just striking. It's a simple, tiny example, but it means if you don't look at when exactly the decision was issued or when the video was shot, nobody knows when that plan will be ready. When you watch the video, you're missing information. And I think um, that's where media experts could really enrich some of the tools the court is using. Um, who should do it? Um, <laughs> I think there's, there's a role for everyone in a way. Um, our mandates complement each other. As I said, we, we may not have the same interests or the same views, uh, but as I think Alison was said, it is incredibly important for the court itself to own its messages, uh, and in doing so, to coordinate between the various units. Um, I think the, the, the registrar of the ICC has said it quite a few times, uh, people don't necessarily make the difference between him or the prosecutor or somebody else in the court. Um, I think the, the expression he keeps referring to is big, big man. Uh, and, and, and it's true. When we go to the field, we sometimes have to explain quite a few times, we are not the ICC. And, and repeat it five, six, ten times during the meeting. Like we, We'll try to answer the questions and we'll exchange. And we'll bring your concerns to the court that part of our mandate, but we're not the court. Um, and at the end of the day, it's important to have some of these answers from those who make the decisions. Uh, and, and to not reflect some of these answers to other units. I can't answer because I don't deal with that aspect. Uh, well, as far as the communities are concerned, this is one court. Uh, so why not have outreach that is a bit more coordinated, that has both someone from the prosecution's office that can explain why they didn't select um, other cases, why the charges are so narrow. Someone from the trust fund for victim, um, that beautiful body that's supposed to provide assistance to victims uh, before um, there is reparation, uh, or also to implement reparation to explain why are they in one country or why not. 
um, how do they select um, projects that they that they support? Uh, I think there is a bit of progress. I don't want to paint too bleak a picture, but uh, there's still a lot to do. Um, finally, and, and I've already um, touched about and touched upon it a little, uh, but which which format to, to use your outreach? Um, I agree, uh, watching a video on a tiny, tiny TV, and I've done it on my even smaller laptop, um, is not great. But at the same time, um, I was quite surprised by how powerful it was as a tool with some of the groups we've met. Um, and, and here, I mean, I'll agree with what uh, Phil Clark was saying. It's only anecdotal. I don't pretend to, to, to speak on behalf of all the groups everywhere, but some of the groups we've worked with um, video is very important. When you bring that back to who's paying for these videos, the state parties, we've had to fight to keep them. Because they, they, in their view, it was a huge expense to record proceedings and then edit and then put it together, and they didn't really see a use. Uh, only by listening from the ground, from who's actually doing the outreach, did they realize that. Um, then I know we're running out of time, so. I'll just touch maybe um, a bit about another, like in terms of the way forward, and I've mentioned um, the, the, the fact that the course registry is going through um, a restructuring and a process. I think that there is a bit of hope. There's a lot of lessons learned from what happened in Spadeon, from um, some other experiences. The ICC is learning, but I think there's also a lot of lessons learned that can be drawn at the domestic level in domestic transitional justice efforts. Uh, and, and for that, I'd say, well, if we just look at what's happening in Uganda, um, I won't pretend I know how good their outreach is. I wasn't there. But one of the things the local international crimes division is hoping and trying to do is to do outreach. Um, I think that there's a meeting probably a week or two ago where they went and they met with communities in the north to explain their mandate. So there's clearly an appetite, and I would think some lessons to be learned that can be used to make these processes also um, a bit more effective. And also. Great, thank you so much. Um, do we have questions? Um, yes, please. Yeah. There's a question that can perhaps be answered by uh, anyone on the panel. But when you're doing outrage work specifically, how do people come to terms with the perpetrator of their, say, specific crime, so that the murderer of their brother, nephew, sister, or whatever that may be, isn't on trial at the ICC? Like, imagine from a very humane level, I would want to see the person who's personally guilty. If they're walking around the community still, um, I'd be pointing at them and saying, why is he not in pain? Um, we all know the legal reasons, but how does that play out at the, uh, at the outreach level? Do you want us to respond? Um, I just collect a couple of sure. questions and then, yes, there are. I wanted to ask actually each one of the panelists, it's Naima from CIJ, it's Bill Cassidy, but I was formerly at the ICPY, struggling with uh, outreach issues internally and externally. So I wanted a really interesting uh, points raised by all of you. So I wanted to ask, how do you guys uh, understand the definition of outreach and what its aim is. 
because that's something that I found extremely frustrating in my job because uh, if the measure of success uh, of the outreach program is raising the awareness of the institutional existence, rules of procedure, who is the prosecutor, what's the role of the judge, what's the role of the registry, and what is the charge sheet, which is what the institution goes through in the early years of its existence, and with the RCC it's an extended uh, uh, period of time. But uh, when you get to the stage where you have more judgments than outstanding indictments, what is the aim of the outreach? Because uh, I would like to understand if in Sierra Leone or in any other of the situations which you worked, there was a, a, an attempt by the uh, courts to get the communities, not necessarily where the victims come from, but and I, I love to use the perpetrating communities, but to get the communities to face the facts. And that's what, what I understood my task to be in the last few years of the ICTY. So going with a variety of information material, or events, or documentaries, or snippets of testimonies, or documents, to the perpetrating community. In Fort, so going to high school in Focha to talk about rapes in Focha, which is not where the victims live, but the children who are growing up and are saying, oh, these guys just don't live there anymore because they're just terrorists. And getting them to question the, the predominant narrative, because it isn't being questioned by their parents, it isn't being questioned by the media, it isn't being questioned by the local authorities, so the court had to do, do, do something like that. It was a very uh, controversial thing. And got me no end of trouble with my judges, might I add. So in terms of, I also I wish I wish it was uh, uh, the case that uh, uh, the modality in which outreach takes place only depends on the creativeness of the team. I think I had more ideas of outreach killed at the ICTY by the ICTY, and I've seen the same killed at the ICC, at STL, and every other court I was involved with. And I was involved with every single one of them. So how much are the institutions themselves their own worst enemy in terms of how the outside world understands what outreach is? Because I tell you, judges don't see outreach the way we talk about it here. By and large, I mean, there are some, there are some examples. And then, I'm sorry, I'm taking too long now. But another unrelated question that we haven't talked about as much. I was wondering how you see, uh, I'd like to hear what people think about the role of academia in a, in a uh, uh, relationship with the international tribunals and courts, and uh, not only writing about them and even some kind of outreach role, but also scrutinizing their work. I've seen both positive and negative sides. Negative from the communities affected by the conflict, where the academia is part of the denial that we were hearing about in the previous panel, where they are actually using or misusing the uh, records of the court in order to reiterate something that is an inaccurate record of what happened in the conflict. But the positive ones, with, uh, uh, we were talking about this in the break, uh, in the ICTY, I think uh, in the last few years, more academics are interested in its work than the journalists. The journalists are there if somebody dies or somebody is acquitted or committed, but otherwise it's not there, it's everything. So, uh, what did now is the time for academia to start you know, scrutinizing these records. And uh, when I look at my work in ICTY, I don't count 
the number of events I went to, a number of kids I spoke to, raped women or, or perpetrators, indeed. I think the biggest achievement of the ICTY was fighting the entire <coughs> machine to publish, put the whole court records database in terms of the public material available online. Because the actual you know, history and scrutinization of everything that was done there and the court records will be done in the years to come beyond the judgments which focus on a very narrow, narrow uh, uh, issue in terms of criminal liability. So I, I have 500 different questions. <laughs> well, you can't expect us to answer. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'll take the final question and then we, we give each speaker some time to answer and we'll break our session. The questions for Alison. The other two can remember to make sure you have to the role of um, history telling and teaching history in relation to outreach and thinking particularly of the institutional role of the UN and the ICTR who have both produced children's literature on the genocide. The ICTR produced a children's cartoon tune book on the actual genocide and the UN outreach program for Iran has produced um, a children's book depicting the um, decades building up to the genocide and the genocide itself. And whether the authority or the perceived authority that come with those accounts of history, um, both those books have been integrated in different degrees into the random uh, school syllabus in teaching history, what whether you could take a little bit out potential implications of that. Yeah, go in the same order, Alison, first, then here, and then uh, for a couple of minutes, maybe two minutes. Excellent. That means any questions I don't want to answer. I can <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's too difficult. Um, on the first question, on um, uh, you know addressing uh, the questions that people have about perpetrators of crimes specifically against them not being on trial, that is a difficult question that comes up all the time. Uh, because the nature of these courts and these, you know, particularly the international courts, uh, is that they focus on those who bear the greatest responsibility. Uh, and so it's rare that individual perpetrators against individual people will actually come uh, on trial. I mean, the way that we, in our outreach, try to address it um, is to explain, you know, what those who bear the greatest responsibility means um, in terms of they're the top decision makers who planned how everything was going to happen and said that they're the ones who are ultimately responsible for the individual crimes that were committed against individual people. Uh, and also, back to the advocacy part of things, uh, doing advocacy with the, the courts to ensure that they had representative charging so that people would be able to recognize uh, crimes being prosecuted that were similar to the crimes that they themselves had suffered so they would recognize their stories in, in what was being prosecuted, even if they were not themselves um, the, the direct victim of the crime. It's difficult. Um, it's not a perfect system. Um, Do you encounter anger at this point when people don't accept that as well? Of course, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, people get angry, people get upset. It's it's quite normal and it's, it's a process of sitting with people and talking with them uh, and trying to explain things. But like I said, I mean, not everybody's going to love the court. And that's that's life, and that's OK. People don't have to love the court. Um, yeah, and I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree on that, but that's good. Cool. 
Um, <laughs> I do agree with you that not everybody has to like it. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, one issue, uh, there's two other issues I wanted to address. One, uh, what Nima was asking about, once there's more judgments, um, I think the, uh, facing the facts is something that it's, that it's useful uh, in terms of distribution of materials and distribution of, you know, in this judgment, this was the defendant, this was the decision. Um, but also, uh, I guess academia perhaps comes into this a little bit in terms of um, providing the information to others who then put together a bigger picture based not only on what the court says, um, but on what you know, other processes might say or on what other you know, research that's been done suggests about the history of the country. Uh, and again, we were talking about this in the, in the lunch break, and it's not the role of an international court to provide the history of a country. It simply can't do it. Uh, and, and putting that kind of expectation on it dooms it to failure. So it's, uh, it's, it's something that needs to be addressed through uh, a range of different um, approaches bringing everything together. So I guess that in a way addresses the last question that was asked, um, and the ICTR doing a children's cartoon book on the genocide, which I had not heard of. Um, uh, I guess it can do it from the perspective of the ICTR. Uh, and I know, for example, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Sierra Leone did a child-friendly version of its report um, looking at the, the root causes of the, the conflict there and, and the story of what happened. Um, but again, it's, it's a, a part of an overall bigger puzzle, I think, uh, the history of what's happened during, during the conflict. And, um, oh, just one last point, really quickly. Um, I completely agree that uh, oftentimes it's the institutions themselves that squash outreach. Uh, and this was particularly also the case in the beginning at the International Criminal Court as well, uh, where it was not given political priority, uh, operational priority within the, within the registry, and therefore, of course, also not within the rest of the court. Um, it's changing. Uh, and and so when I said it's limited by creativity of the outreach team, I guess within the team I included also the registrar, the I mean the people who, who who have the power to let it go forward. So I'll stop and then you guys. Well, I mean, there's not much more uh, uh, to say. Um, I mean, let me start by uh, saying that I was very very interested in hearing about Guyan's. Experiences and your and your thoughts. I would be extremely interested to see how you how you take this on and and uh, operationalize it and, and compare it to these earlier uh, experiences. So that might be something where academics could come in and then you know you draw on the lessons learned uh, kind of thing. So that might be something. Um, just just very briefly to the this impunity gap uh, that you that you alluded to. Um, it is in Sierra Leone, and, and this has been commented upon by several observers, it's striking that uh, sort of these, these feelings of vengeance uh, are, are fairly limited. I mean, there's very few people who, who think they need to, you know, have an eye for an eye or have to punish. It is astonishing, actually, I mean, looking at how people suffered. So, so, um, so that is just something there. So people do not have that sense, actually, that the guy... That, that was responsible for that, you know, should be punished, uh, which doesn't doesn't say that they think it was, you know, they don't justify it, but they say punishment is not the way forward. 
So they have more these ideas of social justice, really. Uh, I found that very strong. So this was not anything African, actually. Social justice is universal, uh, you know? Distributive justice, that was it was, for them, that was what it was about. They didn't say, like, we have a Sierra Leonean way of doing things. They just said, you know, we need, that's what we need. We don't need the punishment, the symbolical punishment of a few. Um, there probably are very simple things to do to make these outreach events maybe uh, more effective, and I think you alluded one to one, which is actually it was so striking that these outreach events were highly segregated. So you had outreach events of the defense, outreach events of the prosecution, uh, where judges didn't do outreach events because they don't need to do that. Um, and, and I thought actually while you were saying that that might make the thing much more lively, is you have someone from prosecution and defense and let them you know, have a debate there and then maybe involve people from the audience. Um, so, so that might be something uh, to think about. I think the interactive part could be really played up more, uh, incorporating more the local experiences there. Uh, but it does take much better trained people to do that, I think, because you do have to have a certain confidence then to face a crowd and you know, kind of do experimental stuff with them. Uh, because if you're not trained well, uh, you know, you will rather, you know, just do the party line in a way, you want to be on safe ground. Uh, so that was one of the challenges, and, and really I would want to point out, and then I finish and I can't answer any other questions, but, but I was impressed uh, by the, you know, uh, by, by this, you know, how people did this work. So, so, I mean, these outreach officers, it's easy to criticize them for not being well trained, it's not their fault, but I mean, they did fantastic work. Uh, you know, going out there, you know, day after day, facing fairly critical audiences every time, being pretty ill-prepared for the whole thing. So, so I, was, I, was really, I was really impressed by, uh, by the professionalism, uh, in spite of the lack of training that they had. Um, so, so maybe just let me explain that last remark, because I had a sense maybe I was sort of, you know, I had a sense that my time was running out and I was trying to make a point and then it sort of come, kind, kind of was a little bit distorted. So Sorry. <laughs> I can't make that point. No, but I think um, often I do think that maybe, um, how should I say, I mean, maybe the public is not always the most important thing, and maybe these judges do have a point somewhere, I don't know, it's, so it's just an open question, maybe these judges have a point, we have to be removed from all of that if we want to make a just decision, I don't know, it's an open question, so, sorry, yeah. Uh all right, I'll be brief, but to go back to the question about, you know, how do you see the link between the one who's facing trial at The Hague and, and the person in the field whose brother or, or, or other family was uh, murdered by somebody else? I think, I'd say there's two things. There's, here's again the role of outreach and information in explaining why, as Alison said, you know, why is it that person, this is because these courts work that way. Uh, we, we had the same issue when the prosecutor of the SEC went after Embaru Shimana, who's a Randis living in France for crimes committed in DRC. And we had training with intermediaries from DRC, and all of them just looked at me and said, Who is he? Who the hell is that guy? They, they had no idea because he was so far removed from the crimes um, that indeed to them it didn't really mean anything. Uh, but at the same time, it's like um, with a pinch of salt because. To me, what's clear is that there is no single voice. Um, every person who's been victimized will have a different view of, of what happened and a different want out of the justice process, or even sometime outside of the justice process. So, so we need to be careful not to generalize. But I would say in some cases, the fact that they're only going after the commanders um, is viewed positively. 
Uh, and I, I wouldn't want to generalize and say that's the view of everyone in Uganda, but I have met with some groups in Uganda that actually felt that the fact that they went after the commanders, they were happy with. They didn't want the, the lower level perpetrators punished because these were their brothers that were abducted by the LRA and forced to fight and kill. So to them, um, they, they saw that as a positive. So, so just maybe to contrast uh, a little bit. And then the, the, the other question I wanted to, to touch on is, you know, once you have judgments, using them to, to tell the story or to, to, to give a narrative of the fact, again, I'd be a little bit uh, cautious here, at least as far as the ICC is concerned. Uh, you have here a big court that's only de dealing with a handful of cases, um, very selected, selective cases. Um, which narrative, because unless and until they're able to cover all the victimization in a particular conflict, you may only get one side of the story if you only base your narrative on that. So, so I don't think it would be easy, and I agree, it's part of one puzzle that other actors need to, to jump on. And the one last point, uh, maybe a question for, for those academics in the room, and what the role of academia could be. I don't know, but perhaps, um, to, to try to base research projects and research endeavors on, on what the needs on the ground are. Ask them what they would want to have more research done about and what aspects really matter to them. Um, I, I always find you know, academic articles or reports very interesting. They're, they're quite useful to my work. But I was quite stricken in Uganda again in March with that network of victims organizations and someone took the floor and had a go at us and at their coordinator for sending them all these researchers. Saying we've had enough. You know, victims in Uganda have been asked a million times about what they've suffered and what they want. We've told it. We've told everyone what we want. What are you waiting for? Um, stop coming to us. So, so, and again, I think here there is a need for formal research and to give a broader picture, but maybe a bit more of a dialogue. I, I think the academic could play a role in providing expertise, for instance, for the translation. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think there is a role, maybe. Maybe not in you know just doing something which they are asked to do by the organization, but well you know work at these translations because that's a highly complex endeavor. So that could be one thing. I think. Okay, they could do a role. Could play. We should role. all learn more languages. <laughs> um, well, thank you. thanks again for um, the panelists. And we will now go to the breakout sessions, and I think maybe enough, so we'll split the room in half. So if you're sitting in the first half of the room, um, you're going to seminar room B, and if you are sitting, roughly speaking, in the second half of the room, then please go to seminar room E, and we will also distribute the, the speakers and the facilitators on the panel. And uh, so I take Vincent with me. Can you with me? Yeah. Alison, can you Now. Okay, so you are out. Yes, teachers. Thank you. Can I be Sure, sure. You know, we did what and, and sorry, 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 last remark. Uh, we reconvene here at 3 30 for the closing remarks, and then we can all leave off. Thank you. Yeah, I was with, uh, we did the research in 2012. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, after the issuance of the trial,
I mean, there is, you know, I mean, I, there was, there was, I was pressed for time because it's a different 